I know for a fact that we will not be able to accomplish the things that are outlined in this agenda without the support of everybody that's paying attention to this webinar right now. And so it ha we have to have people across the Great Lakes who call their congressional members and let them know that this should be a priority. And this is something that deserves their immediate attention. Hello, and welcome to Lakes Chat, the show that dives into all things Great Lakes. I'm your host, Jennifer Caddick with the Alliance for the Great Lakes. In today's episode, we'll talk about the Alliance's federal Great Lakes policy agenda for 2022. We recorded this conversation earlier this month as part of a webinar announcing the agenda. We'll discuss our top priorities for lawmakers in Washington, DC, and dig into the opportunities and challenges facing our federal agenda in the year ahead. So welcome everyone to today's webinar. I'm Jennifer Caddick. I'm the Alliance for the Great Lakes Vice President for Communications and Engagement. We're excited everybody to have, have you all here for today's webinar conversation, which is titled Opportunities and Challenges, the Year Ahead for Great Lakes Policy in Washington, DC. In today's conversation, we'll be launching the Alliance's top three federal Great Lakes policy priorities for 2022. Our agenda for today's conversation is pretty simple. We'll have about a half hour conversation that I'll facilitate with our panelists who I'll introduce in just a minute. Um, and then we'll leave plenty of time for your questions. So um, please use the question and answer. There's a Q&A button at the bottom of your screen. Use that to submit your questions and that helps me sort of keep track of all your great questions and so we can make sure we get to as many as possible. And all participant lines are muted for the duration of the conversation. We're excited to have over 200 people register. Um, so again, we'd love to hear your questions. Please use that Q&A button at the bottom to introduce to send us your questions. So I'm gonna dig right in um, and I'll start off by introducing our panel. Uh, first, we have Joel Bremeyer, Alliance for the Great Lakes President and CEO. Welcome, Joel. Uh, we have Molly Flanagan, Alliance's uh, Chief Operating Officer and Vice President for Programs. Welcome, Molly. Thanks, Jen. We have Crystal M.C. Davis, the Alliance's Vice President for Policy and Strategic Engagement. Welcome, Crystal. Thank you. And we have uh, perhaps a somewhat new face for some of you, um, Donald Jodry, who is a little bit new, started a bit over, not quite a year ago, I think, um, but Don is our Director of Federal Government Relations. Um, welcome, Don. Thanks, good morning, everybody. So Don, I'm gonna start off with you um, and we'll look back a little bit before we talk about our 2022 priorities. Um, and last year, if we put our heads back in January, 2021, uh, President Biden was just inaugurated. Um, there was a new Congress that had been seated and the Alliance put forth a pretty ambitious uh, set of priorities for the new administration or then new administration in Congress. Can you give us a quick recap of what our priorities were last year at this time? Sure, Jen, thanks. Yes, last year was a big year for change and the Alliance put forth um, a suite of priorities that I think are really hard to accomplish. One, a focus on environmental justice, a focus on investing in water infrastructure, a focus on invasive exotics, harmful algal blooms, and also the Great Lakes um, Restoration Initiative, which is a program that funds a myriad of projects around the Great Lakes states. And it was an ambitious agenda in terms of uh, scope and breadth. And I think overall, I would say we did very well. 
And I know that our number one, our top of priority last year was um, the issue of prioritizing environmental justice. Um, were there any steps made or any progress made in that area last year? Yes, absolutely. I think we saw the Biden administration come in and place a real focus on environmental justice. First, in terms of their appointments in the cabinet at the sub-cabinet level, really reflect the breadth and diversity of America. Secondly, in terms of their tone, in terms of policy priorities, in terms of where they chose to invest money, as we saw in the president's budget, and also the president's um, proposals in his both infrastructure proposal and his Build Back Better agenda. And I think we saw the Congress really respond to that um, in, a, in a big way in terms of investing. We also saw the administration um, unveil its Justice 40 initiative, which is an effort to try to put 40% of the environmental benefits in communities that had been um, you know, disadvantaged and otherwise uh, not receiving, or actually I should say, that, that often um, have environmental injustice because of the situational characteristics that they have. Um, and we saw a task force created and we saw um, a number of programs identified for which the agencies are responsible incorporating environmental justice in their programs. So I think we saw a lot of progress. It's a big, big deal to sort of turn the federal government around and really address this problem. But I think um, what I'd say thus far is it's been very positive. And so I know last year, right, um, you couldn't go a day in the news without hearing about infrastructure. <laughs> it was months of negotiation in Congress, between Congress and the White House. Um, and then finally, back in November, Congress negotiated past what was a pretty historic bipartisan infrastructure bill that the president eventually signed into law. Um, and I know there were some big Great Lakes wins in that legislation. It certainly included lots of things like uh, roads and bridges and broadband. But Don, can you give us some highlights of what the big Great Lakes takeaways were from that legislation? Sure. I mean, and as you said, that it was a historic uh, piece of legislation. It took nearly a year to complete. And there was a large amount of investment in programs across America. And the Great Lakes were, were winners in that. Um, the areas that the environment uh, that the Alliance had prioritized were winners. And so we saw nearly $50 billion dedicated for water infrastructure, which is uh, a historic investment. Um, you know, nearly um, $12 billion for the Clean Water and Drinking Water State revolving funds, $15 billion for lead service line replacement, and $10 billion to deal with forever chemicals or PFAS. We also saw a billion dollars for the Great Lakes Restoration Initiative over the next five years, which is really um, a great sort of acceleration of that program, which has been in existence for the last 20 years. And we also saw just a few weeks ago, the Army Corps invest $226 million for the Brandon Road Project, which is critical to stopping the spread of invasive carp. So I think the way I think about last year was a big year for investment. The Congress provided significant new funds and the Great Lakes are gonna be recipients of that. And that's thanks to you know, the citizens around the Great Lakes, the Great Lakes congressional delegation and groups like us and, and our colleagues who've been pushing for this. So I think it was a really good year. And Joel, I'm going to bounce over to you. Um, you know, this is great news. We had some uh, excellent uh, progress last year, some big investments in the Great Lakes and uh, particularly uh, infrastructure nationally. Um, how does that position us uh, looking forward to 2022? Yeah, well, I'll start on that, on that point about the infrastructure bill. Um, it's really important to know that the, the federal investment in water infrastructure, it, it equips the states to really do the work 
of getting dollars out to make sure that drinking water is clean and safe and make sure that sewage overflows uh, are being reduced and flooding in communities is being reduced. This is a really a, a generational investment. You know, the Great Lakes states haven't have not been this well equipped with funding uh, to deal with those challenges in decades. And so what we're looking at going forward is how does that actually play out at the state level where they're responsible for making sure that those funds are spent in the places where the problems are are, are the biggest. Uh, and then um, what happens at the local level to make sure that, that communities are actually receiving the support they need. So that's a really exciting development coming out of the, the that, that water infrastructure bill um, from 2021. And so this is the big moment. We'll, we'll, I'll ask you, Joel, what our big uh, top three priorities are for 2022. But it sounds like you know a big theme here is sort of building on um, the successes of last year and keeping up that momentum. So can you tell us what, um, you know, I know the policy team spent a lot of time thinking about uh, you know, the coming year, what we wanna be asking of Congress, of the administration. So can you outline for us what the Alliance's top three priorities are for 2022? Sure. Um, so right off the bat, those are uh, water infrastructure and water equity, uh, Great Lakes restoration, and invasive species. And real briefly, the reason that we're focused in those areas, one is they capture a lot of work that needs to get done protecting and restoring the Great Lakes and the communities that depend on them. So there's a lot in there. We'll, we'll talk about more of that in a second. Um, it also allows us, as you started to say, Jen, um, to build on the progress that's been that's been made so far. This is a last year was a big um, kind of turnaround year for investment and in policy. 2022 is an opportunity for us to actually um, put dollars to work and make sure that the protections are in place um, going forward. Uh, and that, I think there's a lot of work to be done this year. And the Great Lakes are in a really good position to, to take on to, to do it on those in those three areas. And for all of our uh, listeners, I just dropped a link in the chat that uh, you can bookmark and take a, a deep dive later, later um, and save all this information. It's a link to a page on our website with all of these priorities. Um, and we'll certainly go through all of this in depth in our conversation here. Um, but before we talk in the specific details about the priorities, Joel, how, tell us a little bit about how we picked these. You know, there are so many issues facing the Great Lakes. And a couple of weeks ago, we actually surveyed our supporters. And, you know, as the policy team was deciding what to include in these priorities, we said, well, what are you concerned about? What are our supporters concerned about? And we heard about everything from invasive carp to PFAS to um, shoreline erosion, harmful algal blooms. So tell us a little bit about why we picked these three main priorities. Sure. Um the Great Lakes restoration, water infrastructure, and invasive species are areas where we can make progress, but they're also areas where there's a lot of there's a diversity of work that can get done in those areas as long as the federal government is is supporting and and amping up its own efforts. The states and the local governments and nonprofits in the Great Lakes region can really take charge and get that work done on the ground. So that's one reason we chose it. Um, Another, re and let me just give you a, a couple of examples. Um, for example, you mentioned the issue of shoreline erosion. Well, there's a lot of actual work within that Great Lakes, within Great Lakes restoration programs that can happen to help Great Lakes communities prepare for the realities of extreme lake levels and a changing climate. And so that's that's part of that's part of that work. Similarly, under the water infrastructure and water equity heading there's a way that we can really get focused on making sure that the communities that are hit hardest 
by contaminated drinking water, hit hardest by flooding and, and sewage contamination, actually have the best shot at cleaning up those problems. And so um, within, those, within those big program headings that we're gonna talk about more here, there's a lot of opportunity to actually address the hardest, the, the most challenging problems on the ground and, and the communities that are being hit hardest. And I see a lot of folks uh, chiming in on the chat. We'll definitely get to your questions. Um, I would really encourage folks to use the Q&A function um, to submit your questions. Um, I'll be honest, that helps me keep track um, uh, amidst the conversation. So really excited to see so much enthusiasm for, for all these issues. Um, and we'll definitely get to those questions in a couple minutes. Um, but Joel, I, I wanna get back to you. Um, you know. Don mentioned that our number one priority last year was prioritizing environmental justice. And you sort of touched on this a little bit, but I really want to draw out um, and ask you, you know, how do environmental justice and then also how do climate change show up in these priorities? There's certainly massive issues. Um, and, you know, why isn't environmental justice or climate change, for instance, a standalone uh, priority this year? Well, uh, the short answer is, is because we're working to bake those principles into all of the all of the advocacy work that we do, and so um, you'll see that show up in place in our water infrastructure priorities, and our Great Lakes restoration program priorities, and more. You'll you'll see how environmental justice is a principle that we're trying to advance through those Great Lakes programs um, because it's just vital that they actually address. The, the needs on the ground and some of the environmental injustices that many Great Lakes communities are facing. And so that's the approach that we've taken. And, and in fact, that's an approach that we're working to take in our own plans um, throughout the Alliance for the Great Lakes, not just within our, what, our, our annual federal priorities, um, as a way of just the best practice for how we engage and address the biggest problems facing uh, Great Lakes communities. Um, and before we dig in, I'm gonna I have a lot of questions asking about some specific details of, of each of those priorities. But I'm I'm, I'm trying not to jump into details <laughs> yet. But sorry, <laughs> no, we'll get there. Um, but you know, I'm trying to sort of big picture help people position this, you know, and kind of what we're looking at in um, Washington. And I also want to just reflect on the political realities, right? Yeah. Um, we know. Look, I know each of us would love to walk into the Capitol building and have every member say, oh, the Great Lakes will do anything you want. We know that doesn't happen, sadly, um, because Congress and the White House are dealing with huge issues, right? We have the ongoing COVID crisis. We have economic challenges. Um, there's a hyper-partisan um, sort of uh, atmosphere in Washington. And you know, I'll start with you, Joel, but then I'd love others to chime in on, you know, what are the political realities? Do we think that this agenda can move forward this year? Um, you know, what do we expect in the coming year, just broadly, on the Great Lakes agenda? I think there's a lot in this agenda and on specific other specific Great Lakes issues that can move forward during 2022. You, Jen, you mentioned political reality. I'll just say it's it's not lost on anyone that, of course. 2022 is an election year. And even here in, in February, people are already talking about that. And so there will be changes in uh, our elected officials in the fall uh, as, there are, as there are every two years. And that's just a, that's just a reality that, that we have to face. Um, but 
I think there's a great deal of opportunity to get a lot done in 22, uh, working with a, a bipartisan coalition in Congress and with the administration. And like I said, this is building on progress that's been demonstrated in 2021. So I feel I feel good about that. But um, we want to make sure that we are uh, moving forward as quickly as possible to, to use the time that we have um, during 2022. I don't know if anybody else wants to chime in on that question. Yeah, go ahead, Don. Yeah, I, I think um, I'm... I'm cautiously optimistic about it as well. I think I'd like to make an observation that last year, before Congress passed the infrastructure bill, both the Senate and House moved um, infrastructure bills that contained water funding and on a bipartisan basis. And I think that's really important to remember is I think water infrastructure has bipartisan support. Uh, the Congress is aware of the needs, and I'm hopeful that they're going to be appropriating funding along the lines of what infrastructure bill authorized, which is where the new funding levels are found. Um, and also there's bipartisan support for the Great Lakes Restoration Initiative, as well as for stopping the spread of invasive carp. And so we have a couple of legislative opportunities, and I know that we're going to have a Water Resources Development Act. So I'm hopeful that we'll be having a chance to address these parties. But I'm cautiously optimistic that despite all the things you mentioned earlier when you asked the question, that, that this work is still going to continue because it's good stuff. I can add on there saying that I know for a fact that we will not be able to accomplish the things that are outlined in this agenda without the support of everybody that's paying attention to this webinar right now. And so it ha we have to have people across the Great Lakes who call their congressional members and let them know that this should be a priority. And this is something that deserves their immediate attention. That's right on, Crystal. Um, I'm going to stick with you, Crystal, and talk a little bit about infrastructure, um, the topic of the year, I think. Um, and so briefly, tell me a little bit about when we talk about, first of all, we keep using the shorthand of infrastructure. Really what we're meaning on this webinar is drinking water and wastewater infrastructure. But can you describe a little bit for people like what that means in the communities? Like if we get money to fix our water infrastructure, what does that look like on the ground? Sure. So at at the local level, this is addressing aging water infrastructure. This is replacing lead service lines and addressing stormwater management um, at the local level and in our communities. And so, you know, Don and Joel both mentioned that the um, that historic bipartisan bill included about 50 billion with a B for water infrastructure. And that sounds like a huge amount of money, but is is that really enough? Is that what we need? Well, I think there's two questions. Is it enough? Answer is no. Is that a lot of money? Yes. $50 billion will always be a lot of money, um, but it's not enough to fully address the issues that, that lie before us. We know that across the Great Lakes states, we're looking at a price tag of $188 billion over the next 20 years. And so while we're certainly grateful and appreciative that uh, the water has gotten this much attention from our congressional members, we know that $50 billion is not going to be enough, and it's a sizable down payment on a larger bill. And so what are we asking for this year in our priorities? We're asking for $8.3 billion um, to come through the Drinking Water and Clean Water um, State Revolving Fund, the main vehicle for federal funding to come to the states for drinking water issues, for water issues. 
And so I know that equity is certainly a, a has been a big concern about some of these different funding programs. Um, you know, can can you help us understand how these dollars may not have been equitably distributed in the past? Like, what does that really mean when we say we want to see some equity in the distribution of these dollars? Sure. I know that um, from being a part of a lot of conversations about diversity, equity, and inclusion, there's a huge difference between uh, equity and equality. Equality is just giving all of the, the same amount of money to every community. But we also realize that that's not going to uh, help certain communities that have been historically under-resourced get to where they need. And so that means really acknowledging that there are certain communities that have been left behind that need more investment. And what that looks like on a local level is not just uh, loans to those communities, but actual grants and forgivable loans and attention to those areas that need it most. And we talked a lot about, you know, over the past couple of years, particularly in light of the COVID crisis, we've talked a lot about affordability, you know, whether or not people can afford to pay the water and sewer bills they have, um, and the issue of residential water shutoffs. Um, and, you know, our, our partners over, <clears throat> excuse me, over at We the People Detroit um, have recently released some new research looking at the, the long-range impacts of water shutoffs. Obviously, there's a huge impact that somebody might not have water at their house, right? But there's kind of a ripple effect beyond that. Can you just tell us a little bit about kind of what we the people of Detroit found in their research? Yeah, I definitely want to make sure that we give a shout out to Monica Lewis Patrick and Deborah Taylor and the entire team um, at We the People of Detroit and a lot of our frontline partners that are doing such amazing work every day on the ground. I'll say that um, I'm really intrigued by this recent report from the We the People that really uh, draws a correlation between water insecurity and uh, psychological distress. Um, it's something that when you really think about it, it makes sense. The threat of not being able to provide water, especially during a pandemic, to your families has a um, mental health toll, takes a mental health toll. And so uh, I think that it really underscores the, again, like we've been saying for the past couple of years, the, the correlation between water issues and um, public health. Absolutely. Um and you know, I think we have some asks in this year's priorities about affordability and shutoffs. Can you remind us what those are? Sure, I know the, the main one for me and the one that we're talking about a whole lot, especially right now during this continued pandemic is uh, a permanent ban on water shutoffs for residential homes. Um, again, uh, we cannot expect that families that are having financial issues um, to just be able to thrive if they don't have water in the home. And right now um, where, you know, schools are closed today, there's a, a major storm, uh, not only here in Cleveland, but across the country. Um, I can't imagine as I'm home today with my children and my entire family not having water in our home. And that is a lot of people's reality. And so when we have these conversations, it's important to really root them in um, what's happening around us. And it's not something that people are talking about from the rooftop screaming that they don't have water in their home. They look like you and I, and we see them on a daily basis. But there, this is a very real water issue that people are dealing with. And we know that this is among the top things that we are asking of our congressional members to stop the water shutoffs because that can't be the solution.
Thanks, Crystal. I'm going to shift over um, maybe to you, Don, to talk about Great Lakes Restoration. Um, and one of the, the biggest uh, funding programs that we talk about is the GLRI, the Great Lakes Restoration Initiative. Can you tell us in a nutshell, remind us what that program is and what it does? Sure, Jen. The Great Lakes Restoration Initiative was um, authorized by Congress almost 20 years ago. It was established, and it deals with um, addressing some of the issues around the Great Lakes, such as the removal of toxic sediments, the restoration of habitat, dealing with invasive species removal, invasive species research. And since the program was established, we've had more than 6,000 projects um, implemented to a tone of about $3 billion. It's, of course, based upon a strategy um, that EPA and the other federal agencies and states and tribes developed. Um, and each year there's an action plan that covers about the next three years worth of work. Um, and, the and the program was reauthorized by Congress a couple of years ago when the funding levels were increased. So it's a really important program for the communities and people around the Great Lakes. And for this year, we're asking that Congress appropriate $400 million for the program, which is the authorized level. Um, so that we can continue to do this work. We're also asking that EPA work with its partners to recalibrate the strategy to address environmental justice as well as climate change, which are two new things that have come up since the initial program was started. So that's kind of in a nutshell what that program is about. Thanks, Don. And Joel, I know you have lots of thoughts about the GLRI. I think everybody on this call does. Um, but, you know, as, as Don mentioned, the GLRI has been around for about 15 years. Um, you know, I'm curious, and there's some talk about possibly revising the program or the strategy. You know, is it is it still working and, and what might need to change with the program? Yeah, for sure. And I'm, I'm going to start, I'm going to use this opportunity to start to bring in some of what I'm hearing in some of the, the, the comments here. But um, the Great Lakes Restoration Initiative has been hugely successful, which is fantastic, cleaned up a lot of the most contaminated areas in the Great Lakes. Um, however, it's based on a plan that was conceived, I think, 17 years ago now, right? Times have changed. And so areas like some of the things we've been talking about, environmental injustices communities are facing climate resilience, particularly as people see it showing up in extreme lake uh, water level changes. Um, uh, what are we gonna do as this program continues to grow in funding and maintains bipartisan support, which is a really unusual thing in Washington these days. So I think reconvening and reconceiving the Great Lakes Restoration Initiative is on our agenda because we've gotta start building in some of the realities that Great Lakes communities are facing right now. Um, I've seen a comment for example, about the shoreline erosion issue and what's happening locally and, and how are we going to use these resources that the Great Lakes gets in a different way to actually build resilient shorelines, for example, um, and do that at a scale that we haven't been able to contemplate before because it wasn't on the radar in, in 2005 when the original strategy was, was written. That's just one example, but I think that's an exciting opportunity um, for uh, the administration to, to look at this year. So I'm going to shift gears again uh, and uh, talk over to you, Molly, um, to talk about one of our favorite topics, invasive carp. Um, and, uh, you know, let's set a little bit of background on this issue. Um, where are these fish now? You know, are they are are they any closer to Lake Michigan than, say, a year ago? When we were released last year's priorities. Not that we know of, and that's good news. Uh, and if you've been following uh, the Alliance for the Great Lakes for a long time, you've been hearing us talk about invasive carp, invasive species, 
keeping them out of the Great Lakes. And we're pleased uh, to report that so far so good. Um, but we have to remain diligent. For those who haven't been following uh, the Alliance or invasive carp uh, very closely, which is understandable. Uh, other things are happening in the world. Invasive carp are the carp that you may have seen videos of jumping out of the water uh, when boats go past, smacking into people. You know, big. Uh, there are a couple of big problems with invasive carp getting into the Great Lakes. One is that they eat everything that, that other fish depend on. And the other is that they really destroy recreational opportunities by making it dangerous. To, to boat, to ski, to like have fun on the lakes. And so we're talking about a threat to a $7 billion fishing industry and a $16 billion recreational boating industry if these fish get into the Great Lakes. And that's why we've been fighting so hard to keep them out. And so, you know, we had a, a big win a couple couple of weeks ago, two weeks ago, maybe now. Um, Don briefly mentioned this, um, some new money from the Army Corps of Engineers. Can you tell us a little bit about what that funding is and, and what, the, what that'll do? Absolutely. So the Alliance and many of our partners have been laser focused on a place in Illinois called Brandon Road Lock and Dam. It's in Joliet. It's about 50 miles from Lake Michigan. And what we're trying to do is get a gauntlet of of protections that are gonna keep invasive carp from moving past that point in the river. The funding that we were able to get uh, in the infrastructure bill, about a quarter of a billion dollars is a big deal because it's going to let us complete engineering and design for that project and then move directly into the first year of construction. So this is like a, a pretty significant influx of funding and also significant in terms of smoothing the road over the next couple of years for this project. And so that's another big chunk of money, which is great uh, to address this issue. Um, but I know that doesn't fully cover the costs that the states, particularly Illinois, would have to cover for this project. So explain to us first why the states might have to pitch in some of their own dollars, they already have pitched in some of their dollars, and where that money might come from. Sure. So the, um, the federal partner on this project is the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. They build things in waterways and manage locks and dams across the United States. And so they're a natural partner for this project at Brandon Road Lock and Dam. But the Corps of Engineers doesn't do projects in the United States without local sponsors. And so it isn't going to do a project in Illinois that Illinois isn't somehow involved in, which is a good thing. Illinois doesn't want them doing projects in Illinois that it's not involved in. But what that means is that Illinois needs to be the non-federal sponsor. And they are for the, the phase of the project uh, where we're doing the engineering and design work. Illinois is working really closely with the state of Michigan, which has also put money into engineering and design, um, and the other Great Lakes states on that phase of the work with the Corps. So that's like going smoothly. All the non-federal dollars are in place. Now with these new funds, all the federal dollars are in place. But once engineering and design is done and construction needs to start, there's going to need to be additional non-federal dollars. At least that's what's required now. 
Um, and so we've, we've been successful in getting an adjustment to the amount of money that the state would need to provide for this project. So in the last version of the Water Resources Development Act, which is a long way of saying um, a bill that passes about every two years that funds water, big water infrastructure projects and uh, Army Corps water infrastructure projects. So not the kind the EPA is doing uh, with drinking water and wastewater, but locks and dams kinds of infrastructure. Um, we were able to get that cost share adjusted so that Illinois would, would be able to pay less in construction. Unfortunately, Illinois would still be on the hook for 20% of the cost of construction, which is going to be a lot of money. We don't know exactly how much yet because the engineering and design work is going to lead us to sort of the final estimate of the cost, but we know it's not gonna be nothing. And so this year, uh, Don mentioned that Congress is considering another Water Resources Development Act, or will be considering one. What we're asking is for Congress to adjust the cost share on this project again to 100% federal. What that would mean is that none of the Great Lakes states, including Illinois, would have to put money toward construction. And if you're wondering, why does that make sense? Like, why wouldn't Illinois have to pay for part of a project in the state of Illinois. The answer is that the work that the Army Corps is doing or going to do at Random Roadblock and Dam is going to have a benefit across the nation. It's actually going to have international benefits. So Brandon Road, if it stops invasive carp from getting into the Great Lakes, is going to protect eight states and two Canadian provinces. And the different technologies, the gauntlet, of protections that the Army Corps is going to build at Brandon Road are technologies that they're going to be able to deploy in other parts of the country to stop the movement of other invasive species. So we're talking about a nationally significant project. The nation should pay for the project. And what roughly, what's the timeline on this? When can we expect, to, there's been so much planning and talk about this project for years. Uh, do we have any idea of when we could expect to see construction start? Yeah, so this is just getting adjusted because of the additional dollars that the Infrastructure Act is allowing. What the Corps is, is doing is figuring out how it can phase construction so that it doesn't just wait and build everything all at once at the end but rather it's building technologies as they're able to, as they're uh, continuing to do design and line up other parts of construction. <clears throat> so if everything goes according to plan, uh, construction should begin in 2024. That is great news, great news. Um, I'm going to shift over. Thank you so much, everybody, for all that. I know there's so much to discuss. I'm seeing a lot of great questions come in, so I'm going to shift over to start taking questions. As a reminder for our audience, um, it helps me uh, if you use the Q&A function so I can see all the, the questions in one spot. Um, lots to dig in here. Um, I will, however, um, just leave right now in the chat a link to our action alert. I have a few questions here from folks who are asking how they can get involved, how they can help, how they can talk to their elected officials. We make it really easy on our action center and we also make it easy for you to share that. Um, I see a couple of great comments and questions about you know, how uh, listeners can educate others about these issues. So definitely write your elected officials and urge them to support the, um, the uh, 
um, the agenda that we've just outlined um, and also share that with others. Um, Joel, you look quizzical. Did I drop the wrong link in there? Oh, okay. <laughs> just had a moment of like, uh-oh, what did I put in the chat? <laughs> um, just my, just my, own Zoom, my own Zoom problems. <laughs> <laughs> Got it. <laughs> um, I was really hoping I didn't mistakenly put last year's in there or something. Uh, let's see. So we've got a, a ton of great questions. Um, I think maybe I will start with, um, uh, let's see here. Um, Crystal, I see that you answered a question, which is really helpful, but I want to raise it for everybody because I'm not sure if everybody can see the Q&A, all the Q&A pieces. Um, and there's a question here asking about some about the, about this uh, water infrastructure money um, and uh, whether or not the alliance connects with the state program managers of those dollars to make them understand the priorities. And so, first of all, can you just give us a real big picture view of how these dollars flow, right? They go, they don't just go from the federal government into the buying of pipes. There's a process there in between um, and what the alliance is doing to connect with all the people who are in the part of that process. Sure. So we know that, like I said earlier, one of the main vehicles for federal funds to come down to the states is through the state revolving funds. Um, and so there is an opportunity, thanks to the, the um, person that asked the question about um, our engagement of SRF administrators at the state level uh, within um, the um, state's environmental protection agencies. We are working with them. Um, we're also working with partners to really examine and do a research project on the administration, distribution, and utilization of SRF funds um, in acknowledgement of the priorities that we've outlined today. Um, our SRF administrators are working with us because they want to connect with, with communities to learn more about what really happens on the ground and what additional guidance states should be giving to local communities uh, to make sure that these funds reach the areas that need it most. And so there's an, there are ongoing conversations about community education, especially, and um, what policies are necessary uh, to really make sure the money gets where it needs to go. Thanks, Crystal. Um, Joel, I think I might go to you next. I see a couple of questions here um, about CAFO, Combined Animal Feeding Operations. You're gonna have to correct me on that acronym. Um, big animal farms uh, and the manure pollution that they produce and how that is impacting Lake Erie harmful algal blooms um, and what the Alliance might be doing about this or what can be done about this. So Joel, can you help us under explain that issue a little bit and uh, what can be done? Sure, uh, ha happy to. And and uh, it's so concentrated animal feeding operations and we've got a whole um, agriculture program at the Alliance where we work on issues really related to algae blooms. And, and I, I know lots of you pay attention to this issue because it, it really, hit international headlines in 2014 when Toledo's water supply was shut down because of toxic algae pollution. And we're really active in the Lake Erie and, and in Green Bay, which are two of the biggest uh, algae bloom hotspots in the United States, actually in North America. And it's all connected to the pollution that comes into those waters from agriculture. Agriculture is not the only source, but as I think as the person who posed the question here, it is much light, it's, it's regulated much more lightly 
than the other sources of nutrients that feed these algae blooms. It is a real problem for the Great Lakes. Anybody who asks, I, I, I always say that the, the biggest pollution problem that the Great Lakes are facing in the open water really is coming from, from agriculture. That's why it's so important to get a handle on it. Um, and so the, there's a couple of things going on that, I, that I'll mention uh, that I think are really critical. One is there is the development of a what's commonly called a pollution diet. The technical term is a total maximum daily load uh, that will that should determine how much pollute, how much agriculture pollution can be allowed to go into Lake Erie uh, to, at a level that reduces algae blooms. And this is supposed to decrease that pollution uh, by 40%, which is the subject of an agreement between several states uh, a few years ago. Um, that is the, the TMDL, as it's called, is currently in develop, uh, development by the state of Ohio. It's also the subject of a, of a lawsuit um, that's been brought by the Environmental Law and Policy Center against US EPA. There's a few interlocking pieces here, but I expect that that, that, that plan is going to be determined uh, I hope during 2022, and we're really active at the state level, uh, working to shape that. And and then US EPA also needs to exert its authority to shape that in a way that reduces the amount of pollution going in. The, the bottom line, though, is that agricultural sources remain more lightly regulated than they need to be to solve the problem, and no amount of new money is going to solve that issue. Um, in Green Bay, there, there's an existing pollution diet, an existing TMDL, um, and we're very active in working to make sure we get to compliance on that. Um, a big part of that is combining cost with regulatory accountability. And I'm pleased to say that we're doing some work right now in the Lake Erie Basin, uh, looking at um, how much it's going to cost to clean up those to clean up that pollution and where the accountability for that cleanup should lie. And so you'll hear more about that later this year. I can go on and on about this one, but I'll stop. <laughs> Thanks, Joel. Um, I have a, a question here about invasive species, maybe that I'll send over to you, Molly. Um, and so we have a, a listener asking um, about the progress of preventing um, the movement of invasive species from the lower lakes to Lake Superior via ships, um, and particularly the type of ships that are called lakers, and those are vessels that transit only in the Great Lakes, they're not going out to the ocean. Um, so could you talk a little bit about that and kind of what the status of regulating those ships is and keeping those uh, invasive species from spreading around the lakes? Sure, so along with trying to keep invasive carp out of the Great Lakes, we're also trying to keep both new invasive species from being introduced via the St. Lawrence Seaway and species that are in say Lake Erie from making it to Lake Superior. And what that means is that we're pushing for better, stronger regulation of ships ballast water. And ballast water is what ships use when they're taking on cargo or offloading cargo. They take on water or let out water in order to stay balanced. The thing is, anything they suck up in those ballast water tanks, when they release them, they release. And so you can imagine it's not just water. There's whatever else is in there. And because of that, the um, Great Lakes have seen, you know, many, 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 many invasive species, including uh, zebra mussels is one that a lot of folks have heard of that have been introduced to the Great Lakes via ballast water. What the Alliance is currently doing is uh, working, pushing, press, pressing the US Environmental Protection Agency to 
make sure that it is regulating every ship that operates in the Great Lakes so that they have to treat their ballast water before they're allowed to release it. And it doesn't matter, matter whether that's a ship that comes from China or if it's a ship that comes goes from Toledo to Duluth. All of those ships, we wanna have that ballast water regulated. Um, EPA is actually in the process of developing rules about what's going to be required of those vessels. Uh, draft rules came out in 2020 uh, and we hated them and we told them loud and clear that, that, that they were unacceptable. Uh, and then the Trump administration did not have a chance to finalize those. The Biden administration came in, put a hold on rules and is revisiting that ballast water rule. And Don has been doing a lot of work with EPA uh, to get them to reconsider what was in that original rule package. We don't know what's coming next, but we're hoping that whatever we see next is, is better than what we saw from the Trump administration a couple of years ago. Thanks, Molly. Um, I see a couple questioners here asking if we are going to send uh, resources and information after this event, and yes. So everybody who registered will receive an email with links to the action alert, all of our priorities, um, and uh, a couple of other things for you. So yes, uh, stay tuned and keep an eye on your email box for uh, more information after the webinar. Um, Joel, I think I'll go to you for this next question. And so the question really is about some of the industrial pollution issues, particularly those happening in Chicago and Northwest Indiana, where there are a lot of um, uh, manufacturing facilities and things on the lakefront. And the question is about um, uh, the limits of toxic and industrial chemicals that are allowed to flow into waterways. And, um, you know, there is the question is, uh, is there any effort or will political will underway to address the issue and rescind uh, laws that allow companies to um, discharge some level of pollutants into waterways? Joel, do you want to take that one? Sure, I'm happy to. And I just, I'll put in a, a little plug uh, before I answer this. That we have a, we've had a, an ongoing project here at the Alliance over the last couple of years, working on an industrial corridor on the Southeast side of Chicago, where there's a heavy concentration of industry and, and working to support the voices of the community members there to, to, to shift that and make that a more, a more healthy community. So I encourage people to check out our Calumet Connect work. Um, the question about North Indiana, of course, right over the, the Illinois-Indiana border, also a very high concentration of industrial facilities. And yeah, there have been some high profile, uh, frankly, uh, screw ups by, by industrial owners in Northwest Indiana where permits have been violated, pollution has gone into Lake Michigan, um, and uh, over the last over the last several years. And unfortunately, it appears that there's a there is a pattern of, of, of lower compliance happening in that area issues of capacity, so, so lack, lower staffing than there should be from the state of Indiana, fewer inspections. Um, in answer to the question about can these limits be rescinded, um, pollution is limited. It's allowed to go into the Great Lakes from industries and from cities, but it is limited. Uh, there are water quality, what are called water quality standards that dictate how much is allowed to go in before it is considered uh, to cause a problem to people's health and to wildlife health. The problem that we see in Northwest Indiana and frankly other places around the Great Lakes is that those limits aren't adhered to consistently. 
Um, the, so the, there, there's a couple things that, that, that can happen. One is you can file a lawsuit against the facility when they violate when they violate the, their permits, and that happens. The second is that you can focus on making sure that US EPA has the staff and the capacity and the resources it needs to actually um, make sure that these facilities are staying clean and that the states are doing their jobs. I have had a couple of opportunities to talk with um, the the US EPA region five, which is the region for the Great Lakes uh, in the last few months. And what I am hearing is that there is a dedicated effort to rebuilding the staff at region five that are responsible for compliance and enforcement of these permits for water quality for water quality pollution. Um, as you all I'm sure are aware, that authority and that capacity was seriously undermined during the Trump administration. And so that rebuilding process is going on right now. And I know that just basic uh, basic compliance and is a priority um, for uh, the region, for regional administrator Deborah Shore. And that's been good to hear that feedback. Um, uh, time will tell, and we will continue to advocate for, for making sure that the basics are covered. Thanks, Joel. Uh, we have a question about microplastics. Um, so, Don, I think I might throw that over to you. Um, I don't know if there's the question is, you know, what about the control of microplastics entering the Great Lakes? I don't know if there's anything happening uh, at the federal level about this issue. Well, I saw that question, and you know, I'm just going to give a shout out. It was asked by a very good friend and old colleague of mine, Dan Kimball, who's the superintendent of Everglades National Park. And because he has this Park Service background, I think we need to get him involved in our adopt a beach cleanup efforts because he has a cottage on the shore of Lake Michigan. So, Dan, uh, I know you're watching, and I'm expecting you to organize all of your neighbors and friends to help us expand <laughs> that. But microplastics are a huge problem in the Great Lakes, as they are in many water bodies around the United States, whether they're salt water or fresh water. We have a real big problem with microplastics because plastic refuse, a lot of people think it gets recycled. It doesn't. Um, it ends up in our environment and it breaks down into small pieces and it enters the food chain in terms of aquatic life. And eventually, you know, we end up consuming it if we're eating fish or, or even if we're drinking beer, sometimes microplastics make their way into beer. But um, in any event, it is a big problem. And aside from cleaning it up, which we do every year, and we've been keeping records of this uh, for, I think, 30 years, as I recall, in terms of our Adopt-A-Beach program, in terms of the amount of plastics we're finding, um, Congress really hasn't addressed this issue with federal legislation. There are a number of bills that are pending. Uh, Senator Durbin from Illinois has a bill to ban, ban um, the discharge of uh, small plastic, they're called nurdles. This is what's used in plastic production um, that would ban the, the use of that and the discharge of that into the lakes. Um, there are a number of other bills that are pending in terms of, you know, whether it's a tax on plastic production or in the way we deal with some refuse that would require the producers to sort of be in charge of plastics through their entire life cycle in terms of creating and then disposal of plastics. So I'm not really sure what's going to happen with plastics, but it is a problem. And eventually, I, I think Congress will probably be addressing it in some way, shape or form. Thanks, Don. Um... And Dan, we have your number. <laughs> um, 
Let's see, Crystal. You, we have a, a question here um, that that I think maybe you can talk about, which I think is a, an interesting one. Um, they're all interesting questions, but uh, you know, the question says, "What can we as citizens do to be advocates about water affordability?" And how do you recommend being an advocate when it comes to dealing with water utilities? Right, the utilities certainly there are things that that elected officials and government agencies can do, but utilities are the ones who are really setting those rates. Um, what's your advice for, for this uh, question asker? Sure, thanks so much for that question. I think it's important to have very honest and transparent conversations with utilities. Um, I've been in lots of conversations about how far they're willing to go and where there is an opportunity to influence change where there's not, we've agreed to disagree on some issues, um, but it's important to continue to have that conversation and find those synergies. One of the synergies that I've had with a lot of um, utility providers in our conversations is that we want to um, have more community education making sure that communities are aware of the programs that do exist to address water assistance. And I say assistance because assistance and affordability are two different things. And so making sure that we are providing emergency assistance to communities and individuals that need help in that moment. And there are programs that exist in some places that don't have the enrollment rates that they should because people don't know about it. And so how can we partner? How can we increase uh, education and promotion of those programs? And so it, we have to start with the conversations and realizing that we are not enemies in this fight. And there are, there's a lot more to be gained from building a sustainable relationship. Oh, thanks, Crystal. Um, we have a couple questions about water levels um, and shoreline erosion, which is certainly a challenge um, in a lot of communities on the Great Lakes. We have one question asking our asker who is uh, specifically asking about Rogers Park, which is a neighborhood um, on Lake Michigan in the city of Chicago that suffered a lot of erosion over the past couple of years with the high water levels. Um, and so, you know, the question is, you know, if there's a possibility that we can build resilience into Chicago's shoreline design um, and, uh, you know, what can be done to help communities weather these extreme water levels. Joel, do you want to start with an answer to, to that question? Sure. Um, I see. I see a few questions about this, and I know one of them references a great New York Times article that ran last uh, summer that I encourage you to look up, uh, called "A Battle Between a Great City and a Great Lake," and it's about Chicago, but it's really relevant to any large city on the Great Lakes. Communities, small and large, are experiencing the impact of these extreme changes in water levels, and so I'll talk about this from the very local uh, level up to the bigger picture. The, the person asking the question asked about Rogers Park, the neighborhood in Chicago where there's been beach loss. Um, Chicago, for example, uh, was just awarded uh, $1.5 million and matched that with a million and a half of local money uh, to do a significant update of a study that would determine what options are available for protecting and restoring the Chicago shoreline, which is a which is a very unique and, and phenomenal asset for that city. Uh, it's a 25 mile long public, mostly public shoreline. Um, and so protecting that and restoring it is really important uh, to get the funds to do that kind of work, which frankly is expensive. Coastal construction in our Great Lakes, these inland seas costs a lot. And so Getting those studies done uh, and getting them done with with strong community involvement is really important as the as the first the basic step toward get toward unlocking funds to actually restore the shoreline. 
bigger picture, one of our, and this is in one of our asks, is um, get, getting what's called the Great Lakes Coastal Resiliency Study moving. Again, this is a U.S. Army Corps study that's been authorized for several years, but hasn't been funded yet. And what it would do is it would allow the U.S. Army Corps, which is the agency that has all this great engineering capability, to look at the Great Lakes, to look at the shoreline from the perspective of where can we restore resilience to the coast? Where can we actually um, solve some of the problems we've caused by, uh, by coastal construction and also deal with the fact that extreme lake levels are hurting communities? And where can we do that at a scale that we haven't thought about before, right? A lot of times people think about protecting property on a case-by-case -case basis. And I get it. There's a, if, you're, if your local sewage treatment plant or water intake is at the shoreline or an individual private property owner has a property that's in danger of falling into the water, you're focused on that one thing. The coastal resiliency study would allow us to come up with ideas and plans to work at the scale that the Great Lakes deserves and actually determine what's possible to restore our shorelines at that large scale. And I hope uh, be the basis for uh, using federal and state and other dollars wisely down the line to actually make our shorelines and our communities more resilient. Because this isn't just about protecting one property. It's about protecting the shorelines and, and, and supporting the shorelines for the communities that really depend on uh, the sustainable use of the Great Lakes year-round. Um, and so we've got to get that pro that project funded and that program going this year. Thanks, Joel. Um, we are coming up on the, the top of the hour here, um, so I'm going to wrap uh, things up. Um, first of all, a reminder for all of our attendees, um, please take action, write your elected officials about these issues. You know, I think as Crystal so eloquently said before, um, that is really important to have so many people around the Great Lakes region speaking up on these issues and for your elected officials in Washington, Washington to be hearing from you directly, your friends, your networks, your family, et cetera. So um, we will be sending along in a follow-up email later today, a link to information on the Alliance website about our federal priorities, our full action agenda for the federal government this year. Um, we'll also send out a link to that action alert and encourage you to uh, take action and share it. And I want to thank everybody who joined, but particularly our panelists here today for um, participating in this conversation. And I'm sorry we weren't able to get to everyone's questions, um, but I think we covered quite a lot in one hour. So thank you so much, Joel, Molly, Crystal, and Don. And thank you to everybody who attended. Have a great rest of your day. Bye-bye. everybody. Bye. Thank you for listening. If you care about the Great Lakes, please take a minute to write your representatives in Washington and urge them to support Great Lakes protection. Your voice makes a difference. On our website, greatlakes.org slash lakeschat, you'll find links to our full policy agenda and a quick form to send a letter to your elected officials. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast so you'll know when the next episode drops. See you next Tuesday.